0: How many of you trust Apple Maps? Or, or Okay, your GPS on your phone. Do you trust your GPS on your phone? Yeah, sometimes. We're on vacation and, and we're at, at Bass Lake and we're trying to get over to a little town called Coarse Gold because they have Frosties there. They have cones. And I've promised my kids they're getting cones that day. And we're driving around and, and down some of the back roads there and so I pull up on my, my phone, I'm going to get to Course Gold and put in it, it gives me a, a really direct route to get there. Really nice. And so I'm driving along and uh, we're on the road and, and all of a sudden it says, make a U-turn. And I've missed the road and Susie and I are like, what in the world? And so we drive back and we still don't find the road and finally we find this little gate and this little dirt road that goes up and over a mountain. And if you know me, I'm like, we're we're at a Durango with clearance. Let's go for it. And so for the next, I don't know, half hour, hour, we're on this little windy dirt road on the edge sometimes of a mountain overlooking this valley. And, and I'm thinking, what have I done? Now, in this case, it, it, ends, it ends well because we actually got to our destination, albeit not nearly as fast as if we had taken roads, but it, it, it was something that... I, I thought about, and, and we thought about as we went, do we trust this phone? Do we trust this silly little map to get us there? And it was a little sketchy at times. Uh, those of you on the college group, you may remember a trip where we went to In-N-Out based on our phone, and we showed up at some guy's door in his neighborhood, <laughs> and it said, you have arrived at your destination. And we're like, no, we haven't. And, um, but but we, we trust these things. And, and it's just a, a fun way of starting to think through the topic of trust. What does it mean to trust? And, and I, I looked up trust in the dictionary and it said to put your confidence or to, to act with confidence based on someone or something's integrity, character, power, or ability. I thought that's a, a, really, good, um, a, a really good definition. Then went on to the next definition was uh, a confident hope, which is the definition I often use of trust. Today we want to talk about trust because it's funny to talk about it with an app but one of the christian things we always say is you need to trust god right but what on earth does that actually mean what does it mean to trust god so i just want to throw that out there give me a couple of answers what does it mean to trust god let's put some words to this this phrase we use all the time don't worry okay are you looking at your notes no okay (laughs) no that's that's in there don't worry good okay because what does worry represent concern a lack of confidence in a sovereign god what else what does it mean to trust god is it hard to put into words it's what it's the it's the first place you go yes. god is the first you trust okay i see what you're going where you're going yeah if we trust god he's the first place we go do we always do that no okay what else someone over here let, let's go Jack and then Teresa. Confident, Confident in His son, grace, which means He is above all things, knows all things, and He is executing His plan whether or not I, I, I care, whether or not I can influence it. God is executing His plan. Teresa? Believing, be right. Believing that the outcome will be right. So trusting in God believes that the outcome or His outcome will be right. One more. Jerry? To build your faith in God. To build your faith in God. Okay? Thank you. And so we want to explore this today, and Isaiah explores this with King Ahaz. Unfortunately, King Ahaz is an example of what it doesn't mean to trust in God, and Isaiah is lifted up as an example of someone that does trust in God. But this is a challenge for us, because every one of us in this room, I would bet, has come to a point of, do I trust God or not? We come to situations, and usually they're trials, they're they're difficult situations, where we have a choice am I going to act in a way that shows a trust in God or am I going to act in a way that tries to take matters into my own hands? And that's what we're faced with in in the passage in Isaiah today. That's what we see in the passage today. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to try to get through a little over two chapters today. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to do some work and and give an overview. Not necessarily look at every verse today, but give an overview of what's happening. Isaiah chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black one under the chair right around you. Please grab that and, and so you can follow along in God's Word, see what you're doing, what we're doing. Also, if you have your highlighters, feel free to, to highlight um, some of the, the themes that we see. I have listed those themes at the top of your notes again, so you have that. God's glory and His attributes, His sovereignty and supremacy and trust in Him, His judgment, but His hope and redemption, and then our response. And on the screen, I'll try to put up several examples of that as we go in several verses. Not every verse. You can can highlight those themes on your own as you see them, but I want to give ideas for that. So Isaiah chapter 7, and we jump into the story of Ahaz, King Ahaz. Last week, we we saw that Isaiah was before the throne of God at the end of King Uzziah's reign, and this was Isaiah's call, and he was confronted with a holy, righteous, magnificent God. And he did what anyone would. He fell on his face and said, Woe is me, I'm a sinner. And God cleansed him and brought, it brought him to a place of being a useful vessel for the ministry of God. And so now the very next chapter is his ministry. And in the beginning, or at least near the beginning of his ministry, we've probably fast-forwarded about five years to King Ahaz. Now Ahaz wasn't the king right after Uzziah. Jotham was the the king right after Uzziah. In fact, the, he ruled a little bit while Uzziah had leprosy. We talked about that last week, and and then Ahaz overlapped him a little bit. Uh, it, it wasn't a good time to be king if you wanted to live long, and, and so we have a, a quick succession here until we get to Ahaz. And so we we have Isaiah chapter seven verse one. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So we have the first setup here, the threat that Ahaz faced. And point number one in your notes, and just we're going to follow the story through and grab some principles out of it. Isaiah challenges King Ahaz to trust God in the face of trouble. Isaiah challenges King Ahaz to trust God in the face of trouble. Now, as we read those verses, those names probably weren't all that familiar to you. Whereas if it's our family, you know, if I had said, well, my brother my brother Ken came and visited my sister Karen, and so we, we get it because that's life. So we have to understand the history here to really understand what's going on in, this, the, in the threat, in God's help for that threat. At this time, we know that Assyria was beginning to threaten. And the, the new ruler of Assyria was working to um, coalesce power and to bring under control all of these pesky little, little, little nations that were rising up against it. And so the first threat to that would be the northern kingdom. And if you remember Israel, there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Assyria was beginning to march or beginning to come at the northern kingdom. And Syria, not to be confused with Assyria... Syria is right next to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Ephraim, which is represented by Ephraim here in Syria, they got together and said, you know what? We don't want Assyria to kill us. The the Assyrian army was brutal. They would tear people apart. They would, literally, they would come and destroy civilizations. And so they said, let's work together and fight Assyria and protect ourselves. They sent word down to the southern kingdom, Judah, to King Ahaz and said, we'd like you to join us. Now, King Ahaz here is is between a rock and a hard place. Do I join the two weak countries above me and really make Assyria angry and probably for sure spell our doom? Or do I do nothing and then I just delay our doom? And then I make uh, the other half of Israel or the, the, the northern kingdom mad at me, Syria mad at me, and they're my neighbors. So they send this note down and Ahaz decides not to go into league with the northern kingdom and Syria. So what we have here is northern Israel and Syria are pretty upset about this. They're like, we need you. This is our survival. And so they come up with this plan. We're going to go down and we're going to attack the southern kingdom, which is a bad plan, but we're going to attack the southern kingdom. We're going to take out Ahaz, put our own guy on the throne there... Because now we have more of an army to go up against Assyria. Not even realizing that Assyria is like a bulldozer and they're like little ants in front of it. So there's no way they're stopping it, but they're trying. And so we step into the story at this point where the armies from the north are coming down to Ahaz. And it's not that far away. It may be like L.A. rising up and and getting um, Glendale or something together. And they come with an army and they're going to come take out Garden Grove which would be sort of silly. We're like, why would you do that? And and, and it is silly, but that's the proximity we're talking about here. But what's interesting is the end of verse 2. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were scared. They were worried that they'd be taken out, which tells you a little bit about where their trust was right from the start. And so Isaiah gets his assignment in verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz. You and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of Washer's Field. Now keep in mind, like we said in the intro, God had Isaiah name his children based on prophecy. And in this case, sher Jashub, his son, means only a few of you will survive or a remnant will return. It would be like if I walked up to you and, and Zach, I'll use you. I, I'm, in, I'm introducing myself to Zach and say, this is my son, not very many of you are going to survive. That's his name. You'd be like, you're nuts. And, and so he goes to the, Isaiah goes to the king and he brings his son that says, only a few of you are going to survive this. Great. Thanks. Looking forward to hearing more of your message. Where they're at is important too. They're up at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of Washers Field. At this point in time, Jerusalem's water source was outside the walls of the city. And one of the ways, if you're coming to um, besiege a city, if you could cut off their water, you could really destroy a a city very quickly. And so Ahaz is out there inspecting the water source, and they would do different things to protect it. We know that Ahaz's son um, did something completely radical and built a tunnel to protect it, Hezekiah's tunnel. We'll get to that a little bit later in, in the book. But no tunnel yet, and so Ahaz is out there checking on his fortifications, trying to figure out how he's going to hold off this army. And Isaiah comes to him in verse 4 and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria, the son of Remaliah. And so Isaiah's message is don't be afraid. Don't worry. Keep calm. Don't worry. Be firm in the Lord. Be careful. And and what he's saying is don't, don't get into this alliance. At this point, Ahaz is considering a different alliance. We talked about this in the intro as well. He's considering, okay, I'm not going to ally with the weak armies above me, but what if I have an alliance with Assyria? And And it's sort of like patting a bear on the back and saying we're friends. The bear gets hungry eventually, but This is what he's thinking, and Isaiah says, "Trust God. Don't do that either. God has this taken care of." He he. There's a lot of humor in this. He likens the two armies coming down, the two leaders, as two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I don't know if you've ever played with fire. I have sons. And and so, and we just were camping. Enough said. But the big thing is, you take sticks, right? You take sticks and you light them. And then they bring them out and see how long they, they last. I don't know if anyone else ever did that. I, I did that when I was a kid all the time. And, and Dad never knew. But no, actually. He, <laughs> and and they, the amazing thing is they bring them out in the air by themselves. And what would happen? They'd just go out. Because there's no fire then. They'd just be a, a little bit of smoldering and a, and a little bit of sparks. That's what Isaiah's is saying of these armies from the north are. He's basically calling them incompetent and worthless and powerless. He's saying, don't worry about them. They're just like little sticks or or little ends of logs that are burnt out that have no power. Then he says, don't worry because Syria and Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Catch verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. If you're highlighting, I would highlight that in blue for the sovereignty of God. It shall not happen. It shall not come to pass. It's the direct word of God. He says, Ahaz, you don't need to make the alliance. You don't need to take matters into your own hands. You don't need to worry. You don't need to run around like a chicken with your head cut off. It will not happen. And I'd love to say that that's the end of the story. That Ahaz trusted God. Everyone lived happily ever after. But unfortunately, that is not what Ahaz did. Go on in 8, and he talks about the head of Syria's Damascus. He goes to the source of them. In fact, he sort of makes fun of them in 9 because he says the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. doesn't even use his name. That's an insult for them. And we, we don't see that in English, but he's like, Oh, and what's his name? And so I, God through Isaiah is saying, These guys are nothing compared to me. And then the end of 9, which has to do with what our response should be. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And he's reminding him: if you don't stand in faith, if you don't trust God, you don't trust anything. Your, Your ground is shaky. You aren't firm. And so the hope is that King Ahaz would hear this message. Trust God. Lead his people to trust God. But we go on in the story and point number two is that Ahaz trusts himself rather than God. Ahaz trusts himself rather than God. Verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz and and I'm amazed at, at Yahweh's mercy here and He keeps pursuing and keeps pursuing. Again Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And God here is coming in His mercy and saying, Let me prove to you my trustworthiness. Let me give you evidence that it will not happen, it will not come to pass because you can trust me. He said, ask anything. As high as heaven, as deep as Sheol. And so God wants Ahaz to trust him and offers to show that that he is trustworthy. And in 12, we see Ahaz's heart. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. What's interesting here and troubling is he, he's actually almost quoting Scripture. He's quoting the law that says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Context is completely different. That's a case of doubting God's promises and the test there is trying to prove God wrong. In this case, God is saying, let me prove myself right. All in all though, when God asks you to do something, To look at him and say no is an evidence of an untrusting heart, a disobedient heart, a wicked heart. And Ahaz was a wicked king. And so Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And then Isaiah answers, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And we see a turn in the text here. And we move from mercy to judgment because the opportunity was given and it was not taken. And what Isaiah is saying here is you already already upset men. You're already annoying to men and exasperate men. Now you're doing it to God. That word for weary is the idea of exasperating. And to think about that, that he intentionally exasperated exasperates God. See, God, Ahaz had a chance to trust God, but he wouldn't. He didn't trust God. He didn't wait on the Lord. He ignored Isaiah's godly counsel. That's part of this, is God has spoken to him through godly counsel and he ignored it. And when we are determined to follow our own way, it's hard to follow other counsel, right? Because we don't hear it. And Ahaz wouldn't hear godly counsel and he needed to humble himself. And say, okay, let me, let me see what God has in mind. Let me see God. And so instead, we know from history, Ahaz goes ahead and makes this alliance with Assyria. Pays a whole lot of money. Bribes tiglath the the leader of Assyria at the time. And ends up putting the southern kingdom into a long, heavy servitude to Assyria. That if he didn't make his payments... Retribution was coming. An army was coming. That was his good deal. That was his way. You know, all through this, I, I I think of ourselves. And yet we don't have an army coming down from L.A. That's just an example. But we have trouble in life and we have situations in life that we don't know what to deal with. We have fears and worries sometimes. Whether it be situations that are happening to us with job or health or or situations, or whether it's desires or dreams that aren't met. Maybe it's desiring a spouse, or desiring kids, or desiring a new job, or whatever it is. And and we get ourselves worked up and we worry, how am I going to make it? I want this, I want this, I want this. And we don't trust God's way because we're demanding it to be done our way. And Ahaz didn't trust that God could save them. And he says, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to make a good deal here the only deal that will help us survive, and it didn't. So now the story goes on. And as I study Isaiah, so coming into this series, I'm like, Isaiah is just like gloom and doom. It's horrid. Not horrid. We don't say that of God's word. But I'm like, okay, what are we going to get out of it? But every passage we talk through has hope mixed in with Despair. It's always, yes, there's judgment of sin, but God. But God provides a way. And here we have it again. And so in verse 14, point number three, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And we get to a verse that's often used at Christmas time, but this is the context. And Isaiah is saying, trust God because He was with us. And if you don't trust God, be afraid because He is with us. See, the word Emmanuel means God is with us. And Isaiah here is responding to a lack of trust with verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign, an evidence, a proof that He is trustworthy and that He saves. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. And we know that Emmanuel means God with us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since that day since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And in this, the first half is hope, and I'd, I'd highlight the first half green and the second half is judgment. But the message here is, okay, you didn't ask for a sign, but God is going to give you a sign. He's going to give you evidence. If you had trusted him, this would have been a blessing. This would have been hope. Because you don't, this same sign that God is with us will spell judgment. The message to Ahaz is God is near. God is close. See, when we think God is far away, we don't think he's involved in our lives. When we, when we picture God as just this entity that started the earth in deism, He started the earth and lets it go and we're just on our own now and He's distant. Hey, we can do whatever we want. Of course I'd make my own alliances then. But God here is showing the theology that He is imminent. He is present. He is with us. Which means we can trust. Which means we can hope. We can rely on Him but it also means that He cares when we don't. And He will respond accordingly when we spit in His face and deny Him. This is a a verse that I want to stop a little bit on and unpack a little bit. I will give you a sign, a proof that I am trustworthy, that I save. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now where does your mind go right away? Christmas, I, I... I, I hear a lot of things. Let's go with Christmas. Um, your, your mind probably goes to Christmas. We read this verse a lot at Christmas. We think Jesus, right? We think Messiah. That's the sign. And, and we do that on good ground. Okay, So, so I'm not here to say, oh, we've, we've had it all wrong all this time. Because Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 quotes this. says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so there's all this debate about, well, does this really apply to Jesus? Is this someone at the time? And we can't say it doesn't apply to Jesus because God's word says it does. Okay, so we know it applies to Jesus. But what we have here, and and this is where we, we need to get a little technical with prophecy. Prophecy in scripture often has a double fulfillment a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And this is one of those cases where we'll see in chapter 8 there's a near fulfillment here, probably in Isaiah's own son. And his son is going to be born and God is using that to show Ahaz the timing of his foolishness. Because what does he say? By the time he knows right and wrong, those two kings you're scared of, you're shaking in the wind, their land will be deserted. They're gone. So... You don't trust me, so here's my sign. I'm still going to take care of them, but now you're going to be judged because you've chosen the wrong side. But the double fulfillment says that's the near or the partial fulfillment, but we know from the language that so much more is going on here. When we read, the virgin shall conceive, and that can be a young woman of marriageable age, And in the New Testament, that's used of someone that's never been married, never been with a man. She didn't conceive and bear a son. And we know that more is happening because his name is God with us. Isaiah's son's name is something else. We'll get to that. And so this is a double fulfillment. We're going to see a little bit of it now in the time of Isaiah, but it is pointing to the Christ. And and I think there's a little bit of, okay, You've denied me, Ahaz. You're not trusting me. So I am going to bring salvation. I am going to bring an incredible light to this world, but now it's not going to be now. Now it's going to be after judgment, after the exile, and it's going to be in my son Jesus Christ. And so there's incredible hope in this in the midst of darkness. Emmanuel, God is with us. He is not distant. Being compared to Ahaz, a righteous King compared to an evil king, who was with them. You know, at Christmas time we talk a lot about Emmanuel, and rightfully so. That God with us implies relationship; that He is not far off. It implies that we can trust Him, that He is walking through everything with us, every trial, every struggle. It's a picture of personal relationship, and all that's true. And I think when we understand the context of Isaiah, it's even more powerful. Because the context is a people that have turned their back on God. And God still says, I'm going to be with you. For those that don't follow me, there's judgment. But for those that do, there's salvation and relationship. We go on, and and I know there's more that we can unpack there, but we want to uh, jump ahead. The uh, The next point is the effects of Ahaz's horrid choice. The effects of Ahaz's horrid choice. And so now we get to what that what the result of that sign is. God is with us. You rejected Him. And so a righteous God must respond. And this is how He's going to respond, Ahaz. And starting at verse 18. In that day... And there's a series of four in that days here. I'd highlight those in red because these are judgment. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria... And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and all the thorn bushes bushes and in all the pastures. It's interesting. He mentions Egypt and Assyria. That's who the, the um, alliance was with that King Ahaz made. And he's saying, okay, the, the God you rejected <clears throat> that you decided not to trust because you thought Assyria and Egypt would be such a better option, he just whistles and even the flies in Egypt come at his, his beckon. The bees of Assyria, and they were known for those there, they just come. And it's showing the sovereignty of God, which is why I have that in blue. The sovereignty of God that He is going to use them actually as part of the judgment of of Judah. The judgment for not following God, for not trusting God. He goes on to list some more things that you can read. Um, The Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river. uh, The head and the hair and the feet and sweep away the beard also. And we know that one of the ways that you really insulted somebody was to shave them. Shave their head and shave their beard off. I was thinking we could do an example today. Let's see, who has a beard? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think of Brian. <laughs> hey, come on up. Will you volunteer? And you'd be like, no. But to them, that was a horrid insult. And so God is saying, you will be insulted, you will be shamed. In fact, Sennacherib, the next Assyrian king who'd come and besiege Jerusalem... He, wrote, he even wrote, which is hard on you know stone and, and everything, I cut off their beards. That was his, his brag. I cut off their beards. And so he's saying, you're going to be embarrassed and humbled and shamed. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. Now that's a confusing one, but basically he's saying... it's it's not going to take very many cows or sheep to feed the people that are left because no one's going to be left. He then goes on to, to the vineyard, which we talked about two weeks ago, and said where there should be vines, thousands of vines, it's going to be briars and thorns. And he's painting a picture of destruction of the land because Ahaz did not trust God. He goes on in, in chapter 8 to describe this further. Time of the conquest in, in 8.1. Then the Lord said to me... Now this ties to the sign. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, the idea being so everyone can read it, make sure everyone knows, belonging to Mehir Shalal Hashbaz. Now I know a lot of you know what that means. Because you use that every day, right? No? No? Hey, John, Meher, um, Shalav, And We just don't say that. But, but understand, we have to understand what it means and what God is doing. And in fact, in, chapter two, in verse 2, he says, and, and I will get reliable witnesses. Uriah and Zechariah, they're going to look at this and verify I've written this down. And what he's doing is he's using a name again of a son to make a, to, to make a point. Meher Shalah Hashbaz means speed, spoil, haste, or booty. Or if you you had to to word it a different way, spoil speeds, pray hastens. The idea, he, he named his son, you're going to be invaded quickly. So that's my other son that I can introduce. I can introduce only a few of you will survive and you're going to be invaded quickly. Think of the commitment of Isaiah to God's, God's Word. I mean, this, is, this is awesome. I asked Mark and Jeffrey if I could change their names. <laughs> no. But understand what's happening here. God is still giving a sign. And this is why I believe these four verses actually are the near fulfillment of the sign in chapter 7. He gets people together. And, and this is sort of like you see on America's Got Talent or some of the magic shows. And, and he says, okay, I'm going to write this down. And he gets witnesses this is a name and this is going to be my son that I don't have yet and my wife isn't pregnant. And you're like, okay, your wife's going to get pregnant, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him this, sure. And he has proof that this was predicted by God. And see, God is using this as a sign for Ahaz to show that he has power and he has authority. And so verse 3, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Do you see all the parallels with the prophecy in in chapter 7, the one before? He's saying before he can speak clearly, the two countries that were after you, they're gone. Assyria has wiped them out. The people you are so afraid of are wiped out by the people you think are so good. Good choice. And God is judging and coming to show truth when someone denied Him. And all that is exactly what happened. We see that in verse 5. We see the progression of the conquest. Yahweh spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shaloha that flow gently. And again, there's just a lot of things in Isaiah we have to understand. Shiloah was a stream that came from the Gihon Spring that provided water again to Jerusalem. There's a theme of water here. And it provided water to the valley below. And it would flow gently. And he's saying to the people of the north, because you refused this, because you refused Jerusalem, you didn't want to worship where I wanted you to worship. You didn't obey me. And because you rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remaliah, you're following someone else. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. You didn't want my gentle water? So here comes a mighty river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he goes on to paint that Assyria's army is going to come like a river overflowing its banks that just floods and takes out everything. Worse than what we're seeing in Baton Rouge, in Louisiana. It's just going to take out everything. And he's expanding on that judgment. The northern kingdom rejected God. They are now judged. But then at the end of 8, and it will sweep on to Judah. And Isaiah basically tells Ahaz, you're next. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. Its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And that word is used, again, because the theme is God is with you. If you trust Him, He'll watch out for you. If you deny Him, He will judge. You can't have it in the middle. And so he says, oh, this is your land, God, and it's going to be devastated because your people did not follow you. But then in 9 and 10, we jump to green. We jump to hope again. As God is always giving hope because He loves us. He is full of grace as well as righteousness and wants us to come to Him. And in 9 and 10, "...be broken, you people." Speaking of the Assyrians and and the peoples beyond Israel here. "...and be shattered. Give ear, all of you, for countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand." for God is with us. And your text doesn't use Emmanuel there, but that's what it is in the Hebrew, Emmanuel. God is with us. And so this this theme, this idea of Emmanuel, God with us, He's now saying gives hope. If you will just come to Him. And it, it, it gives hope that the people that are attacking will not wipe out Israel completely. And He's talking about the future there. The distance. I love Psalm thirty, verse six, that compares God's righteous anger and his justice or in his grace. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And I don't know where everyone in this room's at. Some of you may be fighting God and wanting to do things your own way and, and fighting, trusting God. Some of you may have never given your, your life to God. And, and you're like, I don't see why I should. I, I don't understand this Christianity thing. I urge you to see God as Savior. That God is with us. He is here to save. He is offering grace. But make no mistake, if we reject Him, the only right result is judgment. And so we have a choice. Serve God or don't. But either way, God is with us. And so we get to the response. Point number five. We respond to Emmanuel by fearing God and trusting Him. We have two different paragraphs. Most of your Bibles are broken into paragraphs. And two different paragraphs. The first talks about fearing God and and encourages Isaiah to fear God more than man. And so now the the focus sort of shifts to Isaiah and how he's walking with God, how he's trusting God. And in verse 11 it says, For Yahweh thus spoke to me with His strong hand upon me, His presence of His word, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Then a key verse in this paragraph. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And He will become your sanctuary. And so when we think of what it means to trust God, what it means to fear God, the first thing here that is mentioned is to honor God above all else. To fear Him. And and, and it's interesting because verse 13, it says you shall honor Him as holy, which means you shall set Him apart as completely other. And the idea of honor is that you act on that. So, so this, is, this is an act of waiting on God, an act of trust in God that says God is holy, He is above all things, and I'm going to respond. I'm going to follow that. I'm going to fear Him. It'd be in awe of Him, but also fear His response to sin and let that dictate my behavior. One author said, it means to act in a way in accord with His holiness to act in a way that is in accord with His holiness. And we see a wonderful promise in 14. If we follow Him, if we we care more about what God thinks than what man thinks, He will become a sanctuary, a refuge, a place of protection. But then the other side, because God is with us and, and He cares if we don't follow Him too, and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and many shall stumble on it they shall fall and be broken they shall be snared and taken those that fear god a sanctuary those that don't a stone of offense a rock of stumbling a trap a snare see either way Emmanuel's a sign either way and it reveals what he reveals what's in our heart God is with us. I love this idea of, of, of fearing God more than man. And maybe if we put it in our terms, caring more what God thinks of us than what man thinks of us. Ben Hayden, a pastor of, of a church in Tennessee, told a story of a businessman there whose company built landing craft for the military. A young government inspector came in, and he's inspecting and he let the businessman know how things work. It's standard practice to, you know, give the inspector a little bit under the table. little bribe, your landing craft will be passed. The businessman told the inspector, son, I love that, son, I can't do that. You see, I fear God, and that's not right. The inspector persisted, pointing out that, that he would allow the boats to be built much more cheaply than specified if you were paid off. But the businessman also persisted. A few days later, the inspector rejected an entire batch of boats. And he told the businessman that either he would be paid or he would destroy the company. Fearing God over man doesn't always mean it's it's all roses here. It doesn't always mean lots of money and health and wealth. But it means being right with the God who is with us. The businessman replied, Son, I fear God, and that means I don't fear you. Profound. I fear God, that means I don't fear you. This one has a happy ending, but they don't always have a happy ending here on earth. In the upshot, the company was pushed almost to liquidation, but was saved at the last minute by an order from boats from another country who had come across some of the rejected boats at Surplus and said, these are great boats. These are good quality. Don't know why they were rejected. So the company was saved. That's not why we fear God, though. We fear God because we trust Him that His way is always best. And so this section, God is challenging Isaiah, make sure you care more about what I think than what anyone else thinks. Fear me. Follow me. The next section, verse 16-22, talks about waiting on the Lord by trusting Him with a patient, confident expectation. We read, bind up, verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. And in this section, we have a wonderful description of what it actually means to trust God. See, sometimes we think, I'm going to trust God. Maybe I've, you know, something, I've lost a job or something else has happened. I don't know what to do. So I'm going to trust God and sit on my couch and watch TV all day. No, that's not trusting God. That's actually drowning ourselves. That's actually a love of self and trying to drown our, our thoughts in something else. But here we get some great descriptions of what it means to wait on the Lord. The phrase wait on the Lord is synonymous with trusting in God. Verse 16, bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among among my disciples. And he's saying, care about my word. Take the testimony of my word and seal it. Make sure you're committed to it. For us, if we're to trust God, we need to be actively pursuing God's word. If you're in a, a situation where you don't know what to do and you're wondering how God's going to work, first question is, are you in the word? Are you reading his word? That's the source of wisdom that he gives us. Find up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Actively pursue His Word and obeying Him. One gentleman I was reading about waiting on the Lord, actually a seminar I went to, was describing waiting on the Lord. And he said, you know, waiting on the Lord, it's always a point of crisis. There's always a trouble that that we, we have to come to God and wait on Him. But then waiting on the Lord not only is not worrying, as Jacqueline said, and we saw earlier in the text but it's going out and still serving God, actively obeying Him. If you're in a situation where you're like, I don't know how God's going to work and you're tempted to take matters into your own hands, we trust Him, we wait for His answer, but we actively pursue obeying His Word, serving Him, be in ministry, do what He says to do, and then He can work. Verse 17, sorry. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Part of waiting on the Lord is that hope. A trusting with patient, confident expectation. And Isaiah says even now he's hiding his face from Jacob, from Israel, because Israel has turned his back on him, but I will trust him. I will hope in him. A confident expectation that he has this. Verse nineteen, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? And the message to Isaiah here is they're going to say, let, let's go talk to dead people and find out what they think and mediums and witches and, and let, let's find out some wisdom there. And the message to Isaiah is shouldn't you be inquiring of God? Isn't that our, what should, our first step should be? prayer on our knees seeking godly counsel it's sort of silly to to try to get wisdom from dead people when we serve a living god now I, i know we don't go see mediums and witches but for them that was a way but we have all kinds of other counsel and advice we seek right before the living sovereign god who is executing his plan and cannot be thwarted so who should we ask And so waiting on the Lord, trusting Him in a difficult situation. Yes, it's not worrying, but it's actively pursuing His Word, trusting Him, and then being in prayer, seeking His counsel. Verse 20 goes back to the Word, to the teaching and to the testimony. To the teaching and to the testimony. Go back to the Word. Go back to truth. Saturate yourself in that. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light. And he goes on in the next couple of verses to go back to the judgment of people that don't follow God. They're living in darkness. And it's a challenge to us to remember that when we pursue our own way, it's always, it always leads to darkness. It's dark. So what do we do with this? We could take this just as a a wonderful story about Ahaz and Isaiah and what a godly man Isaiah is and what an evil man Ahaz is. But this is God's Word that is designed to teach, to instruct, to challenge us, to correct us. And the corrective here is to see that God is with us, to see that we have nothing to fear if we are following God. And that gives a confidence, that gives a hope That should change how we act. It should change our our demeanor. It should change how when we, maybe there's medical issues, we go to the doctors and it's a difference of am I all depressed at a doctor or do I have hope? Because when we have hope, when things are, are tough, when life is falling apart, people notice. What do you need to trust God in right now? And does your confidence and your attitude show it? There's no room for letting things just, just get us down to a point where we can't even function, because our hope is in the Lord. I think another lesson out of all this is how often do we take matters into our own hands. And, and th- this is a hard, uh, hard to see the line between actively following God and, and seeing what He's doing and taking matters into my own hands. And, and I think the key there is, am I seeking His word? Am I seeking counsel, and am I seeking Him in prayer? Because if, if my solution to this is contrary to God's Word, that automatically invalidates it. If it's contrary to godly counsel around me, or if I'm afraid to seek counsel because I'm afraid what they might say, right, that's, that's usually what we do now. Rather, rather We just don't seek it if we know someone's going to disagree with us. That's a red flag that says I'm not trusting God. Because if I'm trusting God... I don't mind going to the elders and say, hey, what do you think about this? I don't mind going to godly friends and saying, what do you think about this? Because if it's from God, they're going to validate that. If it's not, I don't want to do it anyway. The challenge is, is I, I, I think I am more like Ahaz sometimes where I just want to do what I want to do. And I'm going to find a way to make it look like the will of God. I prayed about it for five seconds this morning. This is what God wants in my life. And yeah, for me, it's, it's not an alliance with Assyria. For you, it's not an alliance with Assyria. But maybe it's compromising on something we shouldn't be compromising. Those of you looking for a spouse, maybe sometimes it's like, I just want to be in a relationship. I just want to be cared for. Maybe it doesn't really matter if they're a believer. The problem is God's Word says it does. Godly counsel will tell you it does and we compromise, and we do things our own way to solve our own problems that have already been solved by the King of Kings. Maybe it's compromising at work, saying if I don't do this deal or if I don't say this, I'm going to lose my job. Or if I do this, I can be noticed and get a, get a promotion. Even if it's, the deal's a little sketchy. Even if I have to fudge the truth a little bit about our product. And we sacrifice integrity, which sacrifices a trust in God at the altar of personal ambition. God is with us through every choice we make, through every difficulty, through every good time. And so he is with us when we decide whether to trust him and rely on him. And that means sometimes times of uncertainty, where we have to wait for God to work and He may not work for a day or a week or a month or a year and we still are to faithfully obey Him, serve Him, move forward and say, God's got this. But what confidence we have because God is with us. The sign demands a choice. Do we do things our own way or do we trust and wait on God? Even if it's not what I want. I want to end by reading the, the first seven verses of chapter 9 and then we'll, uh, we'll sing a couple of worship songs together. But this just summarizes it up. It comes back to the sign. It comes back to Emmanuel and paints the difference between darkness and light. Because the people of, of Judah now, they're left in darkness because of the choice of King Ahaz. But there's still hope. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And he's saying, yes, they're going to be destroyed now, but God is going to make this right with his, his son. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And I would, I would highlight all this in green. This is all hope. This is God's redemption. Because it's referring Emmanuel, the, the future time when, not for us, but for them, when Jesus was to come. He was to come in the very land that was going to be destroyed. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased us joy. They rejoice with you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping, tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's painting a picture of God's complete victory which happened on the cross. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and hold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this section on Ahaz, the wicked king is ended with a picture of the righteous king that is going to make it right. The title today was To Trust or Not to Trust. Because God is with us. Emmanuel is here. I challenge you this week to look at your lives and to say, have I even gone to prayer about this? Have I even sought counsel about this? Have I even thought whether God wants me to do this? Am I trusting God? Because He is trustworthy. He is Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord God, oh, Your Scripture is rich. Lord, when we understand Your justice, when we understand Your righteousness, Your hatred of sin, we understand the depth of Your love and Your grace that sent Your Son to pay that penalty and die on the cross in my place. And Lord, I can just sing Christ has come and worship You Lord, I pray that you'd help us as a people to, to trust you, to truly go to you first, to truly know that you've got this, to truly trust your word and follow your word, Lord. Strip away the worry, strip away the attempts to do things our own way, and help us to know that you predicted 700 years in advance when your son would come to bring salvation. And that's evidence that you can work in my life. We trust you, God. We praise you. We are your people. In Jesus' name, amen.